Welcome to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoyed this message by Pastor David Eldridge. Mark 3. So it's been a couple of weeks since we've been in this part of Mark. So just to remind you, we've seen Jesus' popularity has increased. So there's people all over the region where he is who are now, now know about him. His, his popularity has crossed geographic uh, lines and some ethnic lines. Jews and Gentiles are coming to him. And a couple of weeks ago, we looked at three groups that are responding to Jesus in a positive way. There were the crowds, the disciples, and then the apostles. The crowds, those are just the general group that's coming to him because they want something from him. And that sounds kind of mercenary to us and maybe even a little bit selfish, and there's, but there's nothing wrong with it. All of us initially approach Jesus because we want something from him. We want to be forgiven. We want to go to heaven. We want to be healed. We want some direction. We want some peace. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just not sufficient long-term, but there's nothing wrong with uh, coming to Jesus because we need him, and we always need him, even after we're walking with him. We continue to need him. Then there's So that's kind of the, the biggest group, if you think of concentric circles. Then we, we, we move into disciples, and those are people who are following Jesus. That's what it means to be a disciple. They're people who are saying, you're my rabbi. You're my master. I want to learn from you, and I want to live my life like you. These are people who are devoted to him. And then there's even a smaller group of 12, 12 guys that Jesus chose to be with him in a deeper way even than that group of disciples. And we don't know how many disciples there were. Maybe there's 100. We don't know. Um, that's maybe a safe, a safe bet. And then we've got this group of 12 uh, that's been chosen to be with him in a deeper way and then to do ministry as well. He sends them out to do the things that he is doing, to preach and to teach and to heal and to cast out demons. So that's what we looked at a, uh, several weeks ago before uh, Easter and Palm Sunday. Today we're going to look at two groups that are opposing uh, Jesus's work. One group, you're going to say, yeah, I knew they were doing that, but there's another group that maybe will be a bit surprising. So starting in verse 20, then Jesus entered a house, and again, a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about, excuse me, his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said he's out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said he's possessed by Beelzebul. By the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom can't stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house can't stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he can't stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter... But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They're guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they're saying he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, Jesus asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. So this is one of those sandwiches, we saw this a couple of weeks ago on Palm Sunday, where Mark takes a story and he breaks it apart and he sticks another one in between, and he does that so that we, we in, understand them in light of one another. So he has this story about Jesus' family, that's the bread, and then he has this story about Jesus 
and the devil, and that's kind of the meat of the sandwich. And we're supposed to understand all of it together. Just like when you take a bite of a sandwich, you get all of it at once. We're supposed to understand both of those stories together. We'll start with the meat, and then we'll work on the bread inside, and then we'll do the outside. So the religious leaders, if you remember back, it's been three weeks, four weeks now, they've decided Jesus needs to be dealt with. They've, they've decided he is He's not someone to be trusted. He's not someone to be followed. We need to get rid of him. So they, they can't necessarily attack him directly. He's doing great work, and he has great popularity. He's healing people. He's teaching, saying things people have never heard before, and he's casting demons out of people, and that's what they're jumping on this time. They, they can't, the, the religious leaders can't argue with the testimony of someone who's been set free, someone who can say, well, I was like this, and then Jesus cast this demon out of me, and now I'm like this. My life is so much better. They can't argue with that. So what they're doing instead is they're trying to discredit the source of his power. They're saying, well, it's by Beelzebul. That's just another name for Satan. It's by Satan's power that Jesus is driving out demons. And Jesus just says, That's, that ain't make sense. It's just silly. If, if Satan is giving me power to drive out demons that he's put in place in the first place. He's just undermining himself. He's destroying his own kingdom. That doesn't make any sense. If I'm driving out demons, then what it means is I'm actually stronger than the one that sent them there in the first place. I'm actually stronger than Satan. I'm, I'm setting people free. He's got these prisoners, and I'm tying Satan up and setting those prisoners free. And we all understand that, I think, probably pretty simply. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. Why would Satan empower Jesus to undo the work of Satan? That's just dumb. But then Jesus turns, and he gets, I think, really serious with them, and he says, listen, y'all need to be careful because you're in danger. Any, any sin that you commit, any slander that you say, that all of that can be forgiven except this one. There's this one sin that can't be forgiven. It's an eternal sin. It has eternal consequences. It's an unforgivable sin, and that's to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. That one, that one doesn't get forgiven. And if any of you were, grew up in youth group, everybody kind of grabs onto that, and they wonder, like, did I commit that sin? Am I going to show up and whatever the gates look like? And they're going to say, oh, when 2012, you said that thing, and that was blasphemy. Sorry, you're out. I mean, is that going to, no. So we want to unpack that a little bit, but I want to tell you, I know most of you, you hadn't committed the sin. You haven't, and you don't need to worry about it. But it does for whatever reason, it kind of sticks in people's mind. And so let me just kind of walk you through this a little bit. First, what is blasphemy? It's slander or defamation of God, saying something slanderous or defaming about God. And specifically in this passage, what's unforgivable is saying something slanderous about the Holy Spirit. We serve one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Jesus is saying slander or blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, that's the one. He actually says in Matthew and Luke, you can even slander or blaspheme me, Jesus. That's forgiven, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, that's not. So what does that mean? And again, Jesus spells it out. It's when they said you have an impure spirit. So attributing to Satan the work of the Holy Spirit. That's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus, the Holy Spirit is working through Jesus. And when the religious leaders say, it's actually not the Holy Spirit, it's the devil. That's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. That's taking this good work 
that the Holy Spirit is doing through Jesus, healing people, casting out demons, preaching, teaching about the kingdom, and saying that's actually not good. It's evil. It's not light. It's dark. It's not from God. It's from the devil. Why is that of all of the things, if there's going to be an unforgivable sin, why is it that one? How come that's the unforgivable sin? And I would say, and we'll unpack this, this sin is unforgivable because the, the people who commit it don't recognize it as a sin, and so they don't repent. And that's why it's not forgiven, because the people who are committing that sin, they never ask for forgiveness. There's a New Testament truth that we only kind of believe, which is the things that we say come out of our hearts. Out of the overflow of our hearts, our mouths speak. So if you think about the heart condition of someone who can look at the work of Jesus and say, you know what, that's really not good. Those people are healed, that's actually not good. These things that he's talking about, it's actually all lies. He's, He's setting people free from demonic oppression, that's not good either. The heart condition that can look at that work and say, all of that actually is evil. It actually is rooted in the kingdom of darkness. All that stuff comes from the pit of hell. So you think about the heart posture, the heart condition that says that. And again, this isn't like a one-time emotional outburst. This is a, a persistent and consistent rejection of the work of the Holy Spirit through Jesus. That's a hard heart. That is a heart that is hard, that is callous, that in a lot of ways we would say it's dead. It's dead. You may not remember this. When we looked several weeks ago, there's a place where the Pharisees shift. I said, I said my, my contention is initially they don't understand Jesus, but they're trying. They at least investigate. He is not fitting in their box, but they seem to be sincere in trying to investigate if he is who he says he was. But there's a shift. At the very beginning of chapter 3, they set a trap for him. They're in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. They want to know if he's going to heal a guy because that breaks their rules, and then they can pounce on him. And I think it's in Mark 3, 5, or 3, 4, 3, 5, somewhere in there. Jesus uh, gets really angry at them, and he gets deeply distressed, deeply grieved because their hearts are stubborn. And we said that word stubborn, it means their eyes are closed, and they refuse to open them. That's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. It's someone whose eyes are closed and they are not willing to open them. They're just saying no. Part of the Holy Spirit's job is to convict of sin and guilt and righteousness. He's supposed, part of what he does is help us recognize we're sinners and we need a savior. That's part of his role. He has other things that he does, but that's part of what he does is across the whole world, he's tapping on people's hearts, tapping on their consciences. You can maybe remember that, those of you who've been a Christian for a while, if you can remember back what that was like. Some of you who are still investigating Jesus, you may be experiencing that now, that, again, that kind of tap, tap, tap on your heart or on your mind. You know what? I'm not, I'm not perfect. There are places where I fall short. You maybe are becoming aware of your guilt, all the things that we do to hide and to minimize and to justify and to evade. The Holy Spirit cuts through all that. He's convicting us of our sin, and and we don't know what that can kind of make us uncomfortable. It's supposed to. And another part of his job is to lead us in the truth of who Jesus is. So he's a convictor, and he's a revealer. That's what he does. And if he's doing that work, and you're saying, actually, that work, that's not from God. That's from the devil. You're never going to repent. And so that sin's never going to be forgiven. 
because you're shutting down the avenue to the one who's going to forgive you. Does that, does that make any sense? You can't accidentally commit an, the unforgivable sin. You don't fall into it. It's a persistent and a consistent state of heart. If you're here, most likely, that's not you. You wouldn't be here if you have any care at all about your soul. You're okay. That's what we used to. That's what they used to. That's what all the youth pastors say. If you're worried about it, you didn't do it. And there's there's truth there. There's truth there. Just because you hadn't committed the unforgivable sin doesn't mean you're in a right relationship with God at all. But it means there's still hope. There's still hope. Keep in mind, God's desire is to reconcile the world to himself. He wants everybody that he's created to live forever with him. That's why he sent Jesus. He's not looking for reasons to keep people out. He's looking for opportunities to draw people in. If he wanted to keep us out, he just wanted to send Jesus. Think about Paul. Nobody's worse than that guy. Think about what he did. He killed Christians. He persecuted the church. He tried to stamp out the gospel. He says about himself, I was a blasphemer. We know he was saved. He was reconciled to God. And he was sent on a mission. Think about Jesus on the cross, about people who killed him. Father, forgive them. All of these sins can be forgiven. The only sin, again, for me, the one that I'm seeing, this unforgivable sin, this eternal sin, this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, it's a heart that's so hard is unwilling to acknowledge the convicting and the enlightening work of the Holy Spirit that points us to Jesus, who is our forgiver. The reason it's unforgivable is because the person who is committing, again, their eyes are so, their eyes are closed and they're not willing to open them. Their heart is so hard, so dead, so calloused, so resistant to the Lord that all of the work of God, all of that tapping, all of that convicting, all of that leading, all of that is dismissed. That's not the Lord. That's not him. You're not gonna, you're not, you're not gonna fall into that. We actually probably would do better to focus on the sins they actually do commit instead of, you know, the one that we're not going to. We'd probably get more out of that. So that's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now I wanna look at the bread of that. If that, if you're getting stuck, email me and we'll talk it through. I don't want... I, I do think it's true that particularly for people who have very sensitive conscience, there can, you can kind of get in this mental loop where you're like, did I do it, did I do it, did I do it? I know you said I didn't, but did I do it, did I do it? You know, when you start doing that, just call me and we'll, we'll talk it through. Seriously, I don't want you getting hung up on that piece. Um, of the, there are things that we need to focus on. There are areas where God's asking us to grow. Again, I know most of you. That's not, your hearts are not, you're not there. That's not where you are. You wouldn't be here otherwise. This thing with the family, it, it catches me. So Jesus is in Capernaum. That's his normal base of operations. He's eating with the disciples. I think that means the 12. Some, that's kind of confusing. Sometimes disciples means this larger group. Sometimes it's just the 12. If he's eating, I'm assuming it's with 12 people and not with 75 or 80 people. But there's a crowd that gathers around because that's what the crowds do, and Jesus can't even eat. And then his family hears about it. His family's in Nazareth, 20-something-ish miles away, and they hear about this, and it says they come to take hold of him, and that's a strong word. 
That word means to seize or even sometimes it means to arrest because they think he's out of his mind. They think he's crazy. In my mind, in 2022, that is we are taking you and we are, we are, we are putting you in a, in a mental hospital. That's what we're doing with you, maybe even against your will. We, we are committing you because we are so concerned about your overall mental state and well-being. I think that's what his family thinks. That to me is what those, again, take hold. That's a strong physical word. We're going to seize him. Why? Because we think he's crazy. We think he's out of his mind. And then they, the, his family gets there. Joseph, the assumption, is dead at this point, or he would have been there too. So we have Mary, his mother, and his brothers, half-brothers. Joseph is not his biological father, so we could say technically they're his half-brothers, and they're there. And, and the, the, the physical description, I think, tells you the story. They're standing outside calling to Jesus, and there's a group inside sitting with Jesus, and that's the difference. And then Jesus redefines family. He says, this is actually my primary family. It's my spiritual family. It's those who are doing the will of God. It's not my biological or my blood family. He's not saying that, that, that our biological families are unimportant. He's just saying they're not primary. We'll talk about that more uh, in several, it'll be months, won't be weeks. When we get farther down and Jesus talks a little bit more about family, I don't think that's the main point of this. Again, if you think about that sandwich idea, we're supposed to read the family in light of the, the Pharisees and the Pharisees in light of the family. Those interactions are supposed to inform one another. So I don't think Jesus, I don't think the main point of Mark putting that story there is to say Jesus is redefining family. He is, and we need to hear that for sure. And, you know, sometimes we kind of do a family first deal, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just recognizing what that family is supposed to be, and your first family is your spiritual family, which, again, doesn't mean that you walk out on your biological family or that you are dismissive of them. We still honor our parents. We love our spouses. We do our best to raise our children in the fear and knowledge of God. All of those things are true. We just recognize that our ultimate family is our eternal family. That's based on relationship with Jesus. But I think what's going on here is, is less, again, about family and more about the fact that Jesus is Jesus's biological family and the religious leaders, are, they're kind of doing the same thing. I think they're doing it for different reasons, but they're doing the same thing. Neither one of them, neither group, can acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah. Remember, Mark said, this is the reason I wrote the book, so that you would know Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Neither group is getting it. Mary and Jesus' brothers aren't getting it, and the religious leaders aren't getting it. And in a sense, we could say they're both opposing it. We see it clearly with the religious leaders. They're trying to discredit Jesus. They don't want anybody to believe him or follow him. But even with his biological family, they're trying to seize him. If, they're, if they were successful, then that, that puts a stop to Jesus' ministry because they've got him back in Nazareth at home trying to make him better when there's nothing wrong with him in the first place. I don't necessarily want to focus on Jesus' brothers. We don't know a ton about them. There's a, a, little, a, a couple of verses in John that make it seem that they were not supportive of Jesus. We do know ultimately they, they, they are. In Acts 1, they're in the upper room after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, so they get it eventually. At this point, they don't seem to. I want to focus on Mary. We know more about her. First time we see her in Mark, and so if all we have is Mark, then we would say, oh, she missed it. 
You missed it. She's in the same group as the religious leader. She's opposing what God is trying to do through Jesus. But we have the other gospels, and so to me, it's a, it's a bit of a fuller picture. We see Mary as this woman with great faith, great courage, submission when this angel appears to her as a teenager and says, you're going to have a baby and all that that means for her. At that point, theoretically, she could have been stoned because she, people would have assumed she committed adultery. The God got me pregnant defense doesn't, you know, a lot of people don't believe that one, you know, and so the assumption is going to be, well, she committed adultery. That's why Joseph was going to divorce her. I mean, again, as most people think she's 14, 15 years old at the time. A lot of courage, a lot of faith, a lot of submission. We know from Luke's gospel she, she treasures what she hears and, 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 and sees about Jesus as a baby. When the shepherds come and worship him, she treasures that in her heart. When they dedicate Jesus at the temple and Simeon, a prophet, says these things about him, she treasures those things in her heart. This point, Mark 3 probably 30-something years. Jesus is in his early 30s, maybe 31, 32, so that makes Mary mid to late 40s. So it's been some time. I don't think you forget an angel showing up in your room, and I certainly don't think you forget having a, being a, a virgin birth. I don't think you forget that. So she's got those things. And so it makes me wonder, like, what happened? What's going on that now she's coming to seize Jesus and she thinks he's crazy? What exactly went on? Because I don't think she forgot any of the things surrounding his conception and his birth. Some people think that Jesus was embarrassing the family, and that's what was going on. And I, there is evidence that his family was highly devout. And so it could, uh, maybe when the religious leaders turned on Jesus, and maybe they started spreading the news, hey, this guy's demon-possessed, he's a crazy man, you don't need to be following him. Maybe that did hit the family. Like, maybe that did embarrass them in some ways because they were devout. And again, these religious leaders, we look down on them. They were highly esteemed. They were greatly respected. They walked into the room and you stood up. They're walking down the street. You make room for them. They get the best seats, whether that's front row or back row. They get the best ones. So these guys are, they're highly esteemed and respected. And if they start saying, you can't trust this guy. He's a lunatic demon-possessed, he's leading people astray, maybe even your own mom and your own brothers are going to go, well, maybe so. So maybe he was embarrassing them. I actually don't think that's it, but I think, I think it could be. I wonder with Mary specifically, I kind of wonder, this maybe not doesn't sound great, but I kind of think maybe she's just being a mom. I'm wondering if she's just being protective. It's 20 miles away, and she hears, you know, that Jesus, he's getting skinny. He's not eating like he used to. You need to, you know, and so if that's like the straw that broke the camel's back for her, she's been hearing all of these things about him, and she knows there's this, this now, again, powerful group of people who are opposing him, and if she's like, I'm, no, I'm not, no, I'm going over there. I'm going to get him home, and we're going to get him healthy. We're going to figure this thing out, and if, again, if it's just those of you who are moms, like, you've all done that, you probably did it last week where you step in when you feel like one of your kids is in danger or at risk and you just become a mom. And I'm wondering if that's some of what's going on with Mary. Either way, I don't know, it's just speculation. But I do think what's, what the takeaway for us is what she was doing, even if it was with the best of intentions, 
honestly, that she was wrong. And so were her other sons, just like the religious leaders were wrong. They weren't seeing Jesus for who he actually is, and they were undermining, even opposing, the work of the Holy Spirit through him. And we do the same thing. So again, I told y'all, none of y'all are in danger of committing this unforgivable sin, so push that off the table. But a lot of us do discredit God. We discredit his work. We do that. We can tend to, um, God tends to work anonymously. And so it's easy to overlook the way that he works. Some of us, uh, if we were honest, would say, I'm a bit jaded and cynical. And we get that way because we've done this for a long time and God doesn't always work the way that we want him to. He's let us down if we're honest. And so it becomes hard to fully trust him. For some of us, we, because God never, ever fully explains himself, it's hard for us to trust him. For some of us, it's people who trust God. We say, well, they're just being naive. It's not the way the world works. That's a cardinal sin in our culture is being naive. We're all, we all want to be sophisticated. We don't want anybody to be able to pull anything over on us. And all of those things can tend to undermine trusting the Lord. All of those things can cause us to discredit. We don't say this work of the Holy Spirit, that's the devil. We say this work of the Holy Spirit, that's coincidence. That's what we say. It just happened. I remember I was, this is a long time ago, I was a junior, about to be a senior in college. There was six of us that wanted to live together, and there was one guy, he had been a Christian, he was walking away from his faith, and we were still talking, and he said, you know, I just want God to prove it. And I said, well, let's, let's put something out there. Let's just throw something out, and let's see if God does it. And he says, all right, there's six of us that want to live together, and we got lots of conditions. There's a guy that doesn't have a car, so he's got to live close enough to campus to walk. There's two people that want their own rooms. There's two people that don't have very much money. They need less than $150 a month in rent. That was a little bit back then too. And, and that's what he said. And I said, all right, well, let's pray. And we pray. And within a week, we have a house. It meets all the criteria, every one of them. And I say, okay, what do you think about that? And he said, it doesn't count. And I said, why? And he said, because we knew the guy who called us. We went to high school with him too. We knew the guy, so it doesn't count. That's not blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, but that's moving in that direction. That's, it scares me. I still pray for him every day. But he's, he, that's, that's no good. And we can look at that and go, oh, why did he do it? But we do the same thing all the time. We close our eyes to the work of God because oftentimes he works anonymously and sometimes the way he works is not the way we want him to. A remedy, thankfulness. That's one of the reasons we do this once a month is say, reflect, where has God worked in your life? And then testify, tell us where he's done that. And we tend to think only of the big. It's gotta be something you know, significant, monumental to stand up and say something. And that's okay. I hope that you, that you have things in your heart and your mind. There's no reason every one of us can't come up with 10 things a day. He's done 10 good things today. Every good and perfect gift comes from him. That's what James says. And if we will begin to intentionally and regularly thank him 
then we will develop eyes that see him at work. If we don't, then we won't. I'm not, don't hear me trying to, I'm not scaring you into saying you're going to commit this unforgivable sin. That's off the table. What I'm talking about is a heart that doesn't see God at work, that discredits the work of God in our lives. And normally the way we discredit it is through, we, we just don't see it. Our eyes are blinded. Again, because he tends to work anonymously. So thank him. Super simple. Before you go to bed tonight, you don't even have to write it down, just in your mind. Ten things. God, I thank you for it. List them. You can do it in less than a minute. It won't be hard. Then do the same thing tomorrow, and here's the catch. Don't say the same ten. God, I thank you for my family. All right, you don't get to do that for another week. You do that one next Sunday. Come up with something else tomorrow. Ten more things. You can do the same thing Tuesday. Just do it and see what happens. Some people keep a journal, a gratitude journal. You can do that if you want. I don't care. I just want you intentionally and regularly thanking the Lord. And like Mary's family, we do the same thing. We don't try to physically seize Jesus. He's seated at the right hand of God. We couldn't if we wanted to. But we do try to manage him. We do that. We do try to control him. We do it through our good behavior. I see that all the time. I'm just glad you're here. I don't care why you're here. I'm glad you're here. But sometimes when I don't see people for a long time and then I see them, I'm like, oh, they want something. I do the same thing. God, I need this thing. Look at me. Read my Bible again. Whatever it is. Again, I'm just glad you're here and so is he. But we do try to manage him through our behavior. One He can kind of see why. That's part of being omniscient. He knows why we're doing what we're doing. But even beyond that, that we we don't understand him when we're doing that. He he doesn't need to be managed and controlled. He's better. Then we can conceive. We don't have to try to convince him to love us as his children. We don't have to try to convince him to take care of us. He's a good father. All of that stuff, is a, it's a misunderstanding of his character and how he acts. But we do that anyway because that's how we treat all of our other relationships. When we need something or want something, that person moves up the list for us. We're nicer to them. We pay more attention to them. We reach out to them. And then when we get what we need, we move on. And it's so easy for us just to take that same mentality and apply it to the Lord. We don't have to do that. Again, he's better than you can ask or he's better than you can imagine, better than I can imagine. But we do. We try to manipulate him either through our our good behavior or uh, uh, through spiritual discipline, specifically for prayer and fasting. We do that. We try to leverage God in some ways. We don't need to do any of those things. We're not trying to convince God to do things that he doesn't want to do. What we want to do is take a posture of submission and say, you're you're better than me, period, dot, the end. You're kinder than me. You're more loving than me. You're more gracious than me. You're more merciful than me. You're wiser than me. You're more powerful than me. You're more righteous than me. You're more just than me. So rather than me trying to get you to do what I want, maybe what I'll say is, you know what, I'll just surrender. 
I'm going to surrender to one who's better than me in all ways. Just saying that, like if you do at night, if you'll do the thankful for thing, and in the morning, 15 seconds when you're getting ready, God, I surrender. I submit myself in this day to you. That can become rote, but if you'll actually do that over time, it'll change your heart. It'll change your, your posture towards the Lord. You're acknowledging his kingship. Sometimes I'll just say something like, Jesus, you're the head of this church. Jesus, you're the head of my family. I'm not, you are. Jesus, you're my king. So you get to decide what I'm gonna do. And you get to decide what's best for me. Just saying those things can make a big difference in your overall heart posture. It can, we do, again, in our most honest moments, we would say we tend to try to control relationships because we think we know best. We do that. When we're acknowledging Jesus is the king, when we acknowledge he's the head, we're relinquishing control, even if it's just in that moment of confession. But over time, that moment of confession can begin to ripple out and have an impact in our life. Remember, obedient, or excuse me, submission oftentimes is obedience, but we'll, we'll talk about that another day. That's enough for one morning. Here's how I want us to close. Bo's going to come back, lead us in a little bit of worship, and this is what I want you thinking about. So if you had to, I know you hate when I do this, but I make you choose. If you had to pick, which of the two would you say, that's the bigger struggle for me? Is it a bigger struggle for you to... Uh, have eyes that can see God at work? Are you more prone to discrediting the work of the Holy Spirit? I'm not talking about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Don't hear me talk. I'm just saying discrediting his work, not seeing God at work. Is that a bigger struggle for you? Or is trying to manage God, trying to control him, is that a bigger struggle for you? Which one of those two, if you had to pick? Are you more prone to discrediting, like the religious leaders, or are you more prone to trying to control like Mary and Jesus' family? Let's pray. I want you to grab on to whichever one of those you feel like, yeah, that's the one for me. And I want you just in your own heart to acknowledge that before the Lord. Just say, God, I do that. Maybe you know why and you want to tell him why. You might not, and that's okay. God, I confess, and you can do this in your own words, in the quietness of your own mind and heart. God, I confess that I'm prone to fill in the blank, discrediting you or trying to control you. And I'm sorry. I really am. I'm sorry. Pray that you would forgive me, and I'm thankful that you do. I'm thankful that every word of, slander, that every sin that I could commit, they've all been forgiven. And so I want to receive that forgiveness this morning. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would help me walk in a new direction. I pray that you would bring it to my attention when I'm doing whichever one of those two things it is that you struggle with. Would you show me? And in that moment, would you give me grace other instead of credit instead of discrediting to thank instead of trying to control to submit would you give me grace in that moment and over time I pray those moments would pile up and you begin to change my heart 
posture. I can't do that on my own, and I'm thankful that you don't ask me to. And so I yield to you this morning. God, I pray for everyone in the room, everyone who's watching online, wherever we are in our relationship with you. Haven't yet started, baby's just getting started, been doing this for a really, really long time. For those who are struggling, for those who are thriving, for those who feel like they're wandering kind of in the fog and the wilderness, for those who are feel like I'm kind of hitting on all cylinders, would you, Holy Spirit, come and speak to each one of us in these moments? Would you show us the places in our own hearts and lives where you want us to grow and to mature? Would you show us the places where repentance is needed? And would you give us grace to respond in obedience? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. 